When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Welcome to That Said. I'm Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Dan Abrams. Dan is the chief legal correspondent for ABC News and the host of The Dan Abrams Show, where politics meets the law on Sirius XM's POTUS channel. Dan is the CEO and founder of Abrams Media, which includes the Law and Crime Network. He is a graduate of Columbia University Law School. Dan, welcome to That Said. Great to be with you. So, Dan, I like to start all of these interviews by asking our guests to tell us something about themselves, how they came to be doing what they're doing. Yours is a very interesting background, so if you could spend a little time with us on that, it would be appreciated. I'm doing a lot of different things, um, and I guess the, the, the book series um, is sort of the culmination of that in many ways, which is that you know my career has become one of covering high-profile cases. Um, I graduated from law school, uh, realizing that I didn't really want to practice law, and got lucky that Court TV was starting uh, right around the same time, and, you know, got a job as a, a production assistant on Court TV and, and went, uh, went from there. Um, but one of the things that, you know, I've always loved in my background has been history. And um, David Fisher, my co-author, actually approached me about our our first book um, and said to me, you know, there's this amazing story out there about Abraham Lincoln and the, the last major case he did in his career was a murder trial. Fascinating case. And there's a transcript of it. It's the only transcript that exists of a Lincoln trial. And I said to him, yeah, that can't possibly be. How could it possibly be that there's a you know, a Lincoln transcript out there that somehow no one else has written about. And of course he was right. And, um, and we ended up partnering on this, this project. And so it's sort of taken me into this, this other realm of writing about great trials in history uh, that have largely been forgotten. And so, you know, I've been really excited about, you know, that piece of what I do, because you know, I do a lot of different things from, you know, doing legal correspondent work to hosting shows to running a, uh, a media a business. Um, and writing the books is a, is a really sort of been a perfect way to kind of add to the, you know, existing stuff that I was already doing. Yeah, and I think that what's interesting about these books, and there are four of them, the Lincoln's Last Trial, Theodore Roosevelt for the Defense, John Adams Under Fire, and now uh, this book, um, Kennedy's Avengers, the Jack Ruby Trial. They they are more, I think, than just sort of explications of of interesting trials, but they do explore sort of the American legal system in all of its glories and complexities and failures and, and the like. And, and the evolution of it. I mean, it's not chronological, right, in terms of which books we did first. But if you look at it, starting with the John Adams uh, case, which was our third book, and you go from there to Lincoln, to Roosevelt, to the Ruby trial, you'll see the, you know, the evolution of the criminal um, uh, system in the United States. In the John Adams book, of course, when John Adams is representing the British soldiers, it's before, you know, the system had really been solidified and before there was a, you know, a firm sense of exactly how are we going to be different than the British. Um, and one of the, the one thread in all these books is that there was a transcript of the trial. And, you know, the fact that there was a transcript of the John Adams case that was, again, largely forgotten. 
And so I, I think you see the, you know, by the time of Lincoln's murder case, things are still comparatively casual in the courtroom compared to today. There was no transcriber. There was someone hired by the defendant to write down everything. Why? In case there was an appeal. And of course, that's one of the most important reasons we have transcripts in criminal trials today is so that uh, the defendant can use the transcript to say, to challenge rulings, etc. By the time you get to the, the Roosevelt case, where Theodore Roosevelt was the defendant in a case, um, the system started to look a lot more like it looks today in many ways. Um, uh, the formality of it, um, the transcription, the rules of evidence, although some of them were different. Um, and then with the Jack Ruby case, um, you know, th this is right after or right before, you know, the big criminal Supreme Court cases were being decided. Brady and Miranda and, and the, the great cases that people talk about every day. This is 1964. So you're a year after Brady, a year or two before Miranda, but, but all this stuff is, is just being sort of formally figured out, um, in the, in the case of Jack Ruby. And so I think if you look at the four cases together, you will see a, an evolution of American law. I think that's right, because in Ruby, as we'll discuss in a little mi in, a, in a few minutes, it's really the media and the law and fair trial publicity issues that, that it, it raises for really the first time in American jurisprudence. So let's start a little bit by asking the question, who, who is Jack Ruby? Tell us, tell us about him. Jack Ruby was a, a guy who you know, grown up as a kind of tough guy wannabe. Um, he, um, you know, he hung out with uh, Barney Ross, one of the, the best known boxers in the, in the country. Um, and um, he, you know, he was Jewish. He was very uh, both proud and insecure about his uh, Jewish faith. Um, he wanted to show that the Jews were tough. He served as the bouncer in his own clubs. So anyone created an issue, Jack Ruby wanted to throw him out himself. Um, he ended up getting in a lot of fights. Um, and, but, you know, he got sort of mixed reviews, meaning, you know, he was a, a, a guy who wanted to be noticed. And yet you would talk to some of the people who worked for him. You know, he owned a strip club, right? But some of the women who worked at the strip club spoke very fondly um, of him, others less so. But, but it was interesting that to, to read as in our research for the book, some of the comments made by some of the women who worked there who really had true affection for Ruby and for the way that he I mean, and, and look, one of the key elements of this case, and probably the only reason that Jack Ruby was where he was when he killed Oswald, was that he had agreed to send one of the women who worked at his club money so she could pay her rent because she was begging, please, we, I need the money to pay now. So he went over to the Western union to wire her the money. So, you know, he was a, um, a, a guy who was tough to sort of peg in one particular way. But I feel at this point, like, you know, I know who Jack Ruby was. So let's, before we turn to the trial, let's set, I always, I saw the um, assassination of um, John Kennedy on television. I'm old enough that I watched the reporting as it occurred. Um, and I watched Jack Ruby shoot Oswald in, on live TV that, that morning. But I always forget that people don't have the history behind them. They're younger than me, put in, 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 in easier terms. So tell us a little bit. Before we get to the trial, November 22, 1963, John Kennedy is going to come to Dallas. Why and what were the warnings about his coming there? What was Dallas like as a city? Give us that context, please. So Kennedy was coming to Dallas, you know, largely for political reasons. Um, he really needed to win Texas um, in 1964. But 
you know, he was not particularly popular in Dallas, um, in the city itself. Um, and Adlai Stevenson had actually been in Dallas a month earlier and had been spit on, et cetera, and had said to Kennedy, you shouldn't go there. You, you know, you're making a big mistake in going. Um, it's a it's a dangerous environment and very anti-Kennedy. And um, as we know, he ended up deciding uh, to go anyway. But but he went, you know, with with people handing out, you know, um, flyers against him and there being big billboards against him, et cetera. So this was not what was expected to be a welcoming town to John Kennedy in November of 1963. Right. They they had signs along the motorcade, if I remember correctly, it said wanted for treason. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and impeach Earl Warren billboards. Right. Well, the, the impeach Earl Warren billboard became a uh, an issue in the in the Ruby case. Uh, but but yes. Yes. And so so it was a you know, it was a risk for Kennedy. But I don't think anyone viewed it at the time as an assassination risk. But it was a, you know, it was not a, a, a place where, you know, in large part, uh, Kennedy was a, a welcome visitor. Yeah, indeed. Even though he won the state of Texas in 60, he lost Dallas to Nixon by 62 percent for Nixon. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So it was and, and and nothing had changed fundamentally. I mean, look, you could say that that, you know, Kennedy was maybe a little more popular than he had been in 1960, but not a lot. And, and, and Texas was expected to be a, uh, a critical um, state for, uh, for him to win. Right. So he gets to Texas and the rest is history. And now fast forward us two days to November 24, 1963. And tell us about that day, if you would. So Lee Harvey Oswald has been arrested. Um, He has been questioned uh, by police for a couple of days. Remember, he was actually arrested in a in a movie theater after uh, having shot a police officer. Um, And he, you know, witnesses saw him sort of scurry in and thought it was suspicious. And so called police, et cetera. And they quickly realized he was he was there. He actually put up a, a fight when he was arrested, tried to pull out his gun. Um, and he has now been at the police station for almost two days. And they are transferring him from a, you know, a cell, in effect, to, um, to the jail where he's going to await trial. And um, I don't know if you want me to keep going with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Please. So, so um, Jack Ruby, I think it's important to point out that the night that Oswald was arrested, Jack Ruby was at the police station. Um, Oswald was walked right past Jack Ruby on Friday night, uh, November 22nd, 1963. Jack Ruby did not kill Lee Harvey Oswald. There's a question about, you know, did he have his gun with him or didn't he? But regardless... If he was a hired assassin, as some believe, you would think he would be prepared in his first opportunity to silence Oswald, to silence Oswald uh, when he gets the opportunity. He doesn't. Instead, what he does is he kind of makes a spectacle of himself uh, that night. He corrects the DA, uh, Henry Wade, during a press conference about which Cuban organization Oswald was affiliated with. He tries to help media entities get interviews with Wade. It was vintage Jack Ruby wanting to be the center of attention. And so now we'll fast forward, as, as you said, to, to two days later. It has been announced that at 10 a.m. on November 24th that Oswald will be moved. The media is there. Everyone is prepared for the move. Jack Ruby's nowhere near the area at that time. As I mentioned before, he only comes to the area because he wants to send $25, wire $25 from Western Union to a woman who worked at his club. He has the receipt from 11.17 a.m. that he gets the Western Union um, receipt. 
And she testified that she begged him to please send me this money. I need it. I need it. So he goes, and he's got the, 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 the Western Union uh, receipt from 1117 a.m. The police station happens to be 100 yards from the Western Union. Jack Ruby walks over to the police station to see, meaning he's not sure if Oswald's been moved already, to see what's going on. Police car is driving out, garage door open. Ruby walks into the garage entrance. He knew. He hung out at the police station a lot. He knew how to walk in and out of the police station. And we should just stop one second and just to say why that's so is because as the owner of a strip club, he was constantly dealing with the vice officers um, at the police department. He would bring them sandwiches. He would kibitz with them. He was a hanger on. In yeah, a sense, he was. Right? But I don't think it was because of the strip club. He was just a guy who loved to hang out with the media and the police. Right. He loved to be a part of the action. Um, and the action was where the police were and where the media was. And so, um, so yes, so, so it was not unusual for Ruby to be at the police as he was the Friday night. Um, and as he is on this Sunday and lo and behold, Oswald's move had been delayed by an hour and 20 minutes. They wanted to question him some more. And then Oswald, as it turns out, paused because he wanted to put on a sweater and you can see the sweater he's wearing in the moment when he shot if he hadn't put on that sweater ruby probably would have missed him um and within 30 seconds to a minute oswald is brought out ruby pulls out his weapon and shoots and kills oswald in front of the world one of the reasons that there are all these conspiracy theories that abound and hopefully we'll get to some of them uh, about jack ruby being in cahoots with the Dallas police was how he got into the building and why there was no um, precautions taken when the FBI had warned the uh, police chief of Dallas that there was a, a threat on Oswald's life that spelled out a little bit. Yeah. So the threat on Oswald actually wasn't related to Ruby, but absolutely true. Um, everything you just said. And, and so if you believe that Ruby was involved in the conspiracy, in a conspiracy, you have to believe that the Dallas Police Department was part of it, meaning there's no other way that Ruby could have timed it so perfectly uh, such that the, you know, such that he could have been there. The problem starts to get into, OK, um, you know, so why did the Dallas Police Department want him to kill Oswald? And then a lot of people will then sort of link the Dallas Police Department with other, you know, conspirators, et cetera more broadly. Um, and so, you know, it was unfortunately, in my view, um, a situation that people don't like to believe, right? Which is just negligence, just happenstance. Um, you know, we, I look, when I came into this, by the way, I had not researched so thoroughly the Kennedy assassination such that I had an opinion about it one way or the other. Um, I was always very open to the idea. I mean, think about it. Lee Harvey Oswald lives in Russia, ends up shooting the president of the United States, and he acted alone. And then some other guy comes into the police station two days later and 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 kills Oswald. And you're going to tell me that this is all unconnected? I get it. That's what, that's what I thought coming into this. But when you actually dig in on the facts of the case... I mean, there's a reason that neither the prosecution nor the defense was alleging any kind of conspiracy during the Ruby trial, because there was no evidence of a conspiracy. Um, and again, to believe that the Dallas Police Department are somehow in, in on it, the question becomes how many of them, um, why, how big was the conspiracy, why wouldn't Ruby have done it on the Friday night uh, when he could have killed him at the outset, et cetera. So, you know, it just doesn't it doesn't work for me. And the other thing that convinced me after understanding Ruby the way I came to understand him, that was quite persuasive, was that when he went to the Western Union, he left his dog in the car. And my people are going to say, oh, come on, he left his dog in the car. And you're going to tell me that that's somehow dispositive of anything. Jack Ruby didn't have any kids. Um, Jack Ruby wasn't married. 
Jack Ruby used to refer to his dogs as his children. And sometimes this one dog, Sheba, as his wife. And when he would sometimes say that and someone would correct him or make fun of him, he'd get very angry and very defensive about it. This was his children, his wife, and wife Sheba was in the car. And if he was planning to go shoot Oswald, everyone who knows Ruby says there is no way he would have left that dog alone in the car. And that's just another data point. Is it, you know, are you, you're going to tell me because, no, I'm not saying that's the only reason, but I am saying it is another data point that if you understand Ruby and you know Ruby, that is uh, persuasive. It's, it was so interesting to read that part of the, the, the book, uh, because when I read it, I sort of underlined it and I said, this is a dispositive point on Ruby's state of mind and whether there was premeditation. Well, and also, look, you know, I, I know that the, the Kennedy, um, you know, the, 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 the Kennedy um, conspiracy uh, folks hate the, the Warren report, right? They, except they cite it all the time, right? They, they, they use all of the evidence that was compiled by the Warren team to further their theories of a conspiracy. So wait, um, just back up one second again. Yeah. The listening audience, the yeah. Warren Commission, the commission set up by President Johnson, yes. putting um, Chief Justice Earl Warren to determine uh, w- what happened um, in the assassination of, of John Kennedy. And whether there was a conspiracy, right? I mean, whether, look, we needed to know. Were the Russians involved? Were the Cubans involved? I mean, you know, these are national security issues. This wasn't just a sort of a question of, oh, you know, it's, we, we need to find out who did it these are big picture questions and there was a lot of suggestions that you know could it be the mob could it be the russians could it be the cubans um etc and so the warren commission um looks into this and and there were you know there were some mistakes that were made meaning both the fbi and the cia were not as forthcoming as they should have been in terms of having um oswald on their radar and as a result, it led to, you know, certain mistakes, oversights, whatever the case may be. But the, the Warren Commission thoroughly investigated the question of Jack Ruby's involvement. And, you know, people suggest that it was sort of always a whitewash. The amount of time and effort that the investigators in the Warren team um, committed to investigating this, you know, it was 26 volumes. And... There's a reason that, you know, none of them came to the conclusion, most importantly, the commission itself was so definitive in its conclusion that both Oswald acted alone and that Ruby acted alone. And I and I think that, you know, it's not one of these cases where I can say, you know, I I sometimes say to people when they have a conspiracy theory, I say, you know, I'll talk about something in the news, right? And something I'll say, you know, read the inspector general report, right? And you will, in this case, the conspiracy theorists have read, um, most of them have read the Warren report. Um, so I'm not going to suggest that they haven't read the, the report. It's simply that when you look at who the people were who were involved, you know, Earl Warren and Gerald Ford and um, Arlen Specter was of counsel, et cetera. I mean, you know, the amount of people would have to be sort of in on it, this this effort to sort of cover up is just, you know, it's 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 a it's a it's an enormous allegation to make that that has no evidence to back it up, meaning you can criticize the Warren report. Fair enough. But the notion that there was some level of in, intentional conduct on their part to whitewash it, to to make it go away, there's simply no evidence of that. Ruby testified before the Warren Commission at, at length, right? In jail. And for Earl, it wasn't a, we, we refer to it as testify. He was, he's, he's sitting there in jail and Earl Warren shows up with Gerald Ford and Arlen Specter um, and questioned Jack Ruby about what happened. Um, and Ruby again and again insists that he acted alone. Um, you know, look, whether every single explanation Ruby, he was, you know, Ruby was definitely you know, had some spectrum of mental illness. You know, how serious it was is, is a subject for debate. But, you know, he was con- he's talking about how the Jews are under attack and 
et cetera. But, you know, again, those who claim Jack Ruby said in the context of this interview, I want to go to Washington because I need to explain what happened or you know, something along those lines. He, he used the words. But if you look at the context, he wants to go to Washington to talk about how the Jews are in danger, not to to go to Washington to talk about the conspiracy, because again and again, he insists he acted alone and that he's very frustrated. And, and he insisted on, an, on a lie detector test. I mean, think about that. This guy who supposedly is part of a conspiracy to uh, kill Oswald, and I presume part of the conspiracy to kill Kennedy, um, is insisting on taking a lie detector test? I mean, again, why, why insist on taking a lie detector test? Which, of course, um, you know, he, he passed. Um, so, you know, it, there's just the more you dig into this with an objective viewpoint, the harder it is to believe that there was a broader conspiracy, in particular with regard to Jack Ruby. So I want to get to the trial because that's what the heart of the book is. But before we get there, one one last thing. So the Warren Commission reaches its conclusions that there was no significant link between Jack Ruby and organized crime and that there, even though Ruby did have known connections yes. – and he, and with, look, he, with, he, with organized crime, both in Dallas and in, in New Orleans. Well, and, and, and in Chicago, and Chicago, to some degree. Yeah. You know, so, but, but the point is, he even talked to a orga- low-level organized crime guy a few days before, right? Oh, see, see, he had a call. He was calling because his, he was angry about the fact that a, a, a neighboring strip club was allowing um, women who were not professionals to have an amateur night. And that, in theory, that violated uh, certain regulations, et cetera. And he was trying to see if this mobster could help him, um, you know, uh, uh, get this other guy out of business. Um, you know, that's what the call was about. We know there's not a mystery here. But people want, oh, you know, yeah, you know, he went to Cuba in 1959. Yes. Yes, he went to Cuba before John Kennedy was even the top candidate for president. What the plan is already going on before John Kennedy is even you know formally nominated to 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 assassinate him along with the Cubans even before the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, it just the the, the you can throw there is there is an enormous amount of smoke here, right? And and I get it, and it's not made up, right? I mean, he actually did go to Cuba, um, uh, but the problem is that when you actually look into these various incidents, they are totally unrelated to the assassination. So last last point, and then I want to get to the trial because it's a great uh, trial. Tell us about the 1979 House Select Committee that investigated the murders of Dr. King and JFK, because there's some space, I guess, between yeah. their findings and the Warren Commission's findings. So um, they reviewed... Um, anew, both the assassination of of Martin Luther King and of uh, John Kennedy. And they had prepared a 600-page or something report that was going to pronounce that Oswald acted alone and that Ruby acted alone. And at the last minute, evidence was presented to them, acoustic evidence, which suggested at the time another gunshot which would mean there weren't just three, that there were at least four, which would mean that it couldn't have been just Oswald. And it was singularly that acoustic evidence that convinced the the committee to change its ruling, its determination, and say that it's likely that there was a, um, a conspiracy and that Jack Ruby may have been part of it, and then talked about his mob connections, et cetera. That evidence was, within years later, totally discredited. Um, so I am convinced that if any House committee were to investigate it again, that they would immediately dismiss that acoustic evidence. And I'm not going to get into the, the specific details of, of why it was unreliable. Um, but it became clear that, that, you know, it, it simply um, you know, was not what it seemed. 
um, that the answer would be again that Oswald acted alone and that Ruby acted alone. And I know, look, it, it's not good business to take that position, right? I mean, people, the people who are making real money off of this stuff are the people who believe that there wasn't a, a conspiracy. Um, and, um, you know, it, it just, the facts just don't point that way. And, and look, the book, as you know, the book is not really about the conspiracy. I mean, meaning we talk about conspiracy even in the, in the name of the book um, because it hung over the courtroom, right? Yeah. There were always sort of hints at it. And, and by the way, I believe that many of the conspiracy theories came from the trial because there were questions that went unanswered in the case. I mean, you know, a question. Did uh, We'd like to stipulate that Oswald and, and Ruby um, uh, didn't act together. We're not stipulating that. Oh, wait a sec. Why? An FBI agent asked, um, do you have any evidence that Ruby and Oswald knew each other? Objection, Your Honor. Objection because it had nothing to do with the defense that was being presented. But instead, it was interpreted as, ah, see, they're hiding. Cover up. Yep. So let's turn to the trial, because that is what the heart of the, the book is. But you're right, the overlay of these um, conspiracy theories and the Warren Commission and the 1979 Commission hung heavy in in present day analysis and, and at the time um, set the you know, sort of parameters of what we're going to talk about. So this trial starts, the most amazing thing to me, or one of the most amazing things to me, is this trial starts in February. The the murder is November 24, and in February, they've already decided they're going to hold a trial. Tell, how, under well, and, and under today's standards, right. George Floyd took a year to come to trial. And that was fast. I yeah. mean, you know, yeah, I mean, certain, uh, depending on the case, but... But yeah, I mean, it's really amazing when you think about it that they had a two-day change of venue uh, hearing, they had two bail proceedings, et cetera, and the trial still happens uh, within months. Look, this is this is sort of the if if the next book in the series was one on today, the final evolution of the American legal system would be uh, you know a, a lot slower justice. Then we saw in the Lincoln trial, in the Roosevelt case, and certainly in the Ruby case. Um, so looking back at it today as, as attorneys as we are, um, it is kind of astonishing that it went to trial so, so quickly. And look, and there was a lot of questions about, you know, the defense's strategy there, right, in not asking for more time to allow sort of passions to cool, et cetera. Right. They, they, there was no motion uh, for delay, but there was, you said, a two-day venue hearing, and and that features prominently in the book and and in the appeal at the end. So tell us a little bit about this the the venue fight that took place pre-trial. I loved. We had a line in the book that says uh, something to the effect of, "If you weren't um, subpoenaed to testify in the change of venue hearing, you were a nobody in Dallas." Um, right. It it was basically. You know, it was the the event, right? And the the question that was being asked was by prominent people in Dallas: Do you think that Ruby can get a fair trial in Dallas? Um, and the judge had somewhere between suggested to promised the defense that he was going to move it. Now, exactly where on the spectrum it was, we don't know, but he definitely at least suggested he was going to move the trial and may have actually told the defense he was going to move it. But he didn't in the end. And, and one of the reasons may have been that, that the judge figured out that he wouldn't be able to go with the case, that if there was a change of venue, that it would be a judge in a different county who would end up presiding over it. And Judge Joe Brown wanted this case. In fact, Judge Brown spoke to the district outside of Dallas that would be logical locations for the new trial, move it to San Antonio or move it to Houston or move it someplace else. And he said, I'd like to take my trial with me. Yeah. And they said, 
they said to him, no, 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 no way, Joe. You're, you're, you know, you can send your trial here, but, but you're, you're staying in Dallas. Right. right? And, and obviously, if that's the reason that he didn't move the case, I mean, you know, that's horrible. I mean, look, and Joe Brown was, you know, was not a good judge. I mean, he was not, um, he was not well-versed in the law. He was not really even a lawyer. And I say not really even, he went to a night school, but I don't, it's unclear to us whether he was a night law school, um, but it's unclear to us whether he was actually ever formally admitted to the bar. And you didn't have to be a lawyer to be elected. Uh, to become a judge. And so, so, you know, he, he, he winged it a lot. And, and actually there's a, without getting into the specific issue, there was actually a point in the case, which we talk about in the book where he almost made such a bad ruling because he just didn't understand the law. The prosecutors then figured it out and saved him from the issue anyway. But the point is that, that, that judge Joe Brown, um, you know, was, uh, was, was, probably not the the perfect judge for this case. So you did have, though, good lawyers, good prosecutor, and Henry Wade, and um, a good defense attorney. And we'll talk about the dis- defense strategy, but no one doubts the, the, the bona fides of Melvin Belli as, as an attorney. So talk a little bit about who, who start maybe with who was Tom Howard and then how did Melvin Belli come to be Ruby's lawyer and then maybe the Henry Wade Alexander prosecution team? Because it's nice to know who, yeah. who the primary actors are in our trial here. Tom Howard was a local attorney. Um, he knew Ruby, had sort of represented him a little bit in the past. Um, and, you know, a bunch of lawyers kind of showed up to represent Ruby. But, but Tom Howard was uh, Ruby's lawyer. Um, in the early days of the case. And um, he was preparing to present a defense that this was what is called murder without malice. And in the state of Texas, effectively, we view as manslaughter today. Um, in the state of Texas at that time, that's an, a, a sentence of up to five years, just five years. And he was going to say he just lost it in the moment. And it was in a moment of passion he looked at Oswald's face and he was smirking or whatever it was. He got out his gunshot. The family of Jack Ruby decided they wanted a higher profile, lawyer, that they didn't think that local guy Tom Howard was the guy for them. So they interviewed a bunch of famous lawyers, some of them who had TV connections, et cetera. And they ended up landing on Melvin Bell, who was arguably the most famous lawyer in America at that time. Um, he was primarily a personal injury lawyer. Um, very flamboyant, but had also done some criminal uh, work and was very familiar with medical testimony, primarily from his personal injury days. Um, And he's the one who decided to pursue the insanity defense. The prosecutors, if you point out Henry Wade and Bill Alexander, um, you know, classic Texas um, lawyers. And I say I say that only in the sense that you know, they were they were local folk. Um, they they knew the the system in Dallas um, and they were both, um, I think, solid prosecutors. Um, I think that, you know, both sides viewed the other as uh, weak and problematic. And that led to an enormous amount of fireworks inside the court. Right. When you're when our audience reads the book, the thing that will strike them, I think, amazing is the acrimony between the legal camps and what they said to one another in, in open court. Today, you couldn't you couldn't speak like that in, in open court, but they were they were calling each other names. And I mean, and, and, and look, a lot of this was, um, you know, was about the fact that Wade and Alexander, as I say, were were, you know, guys who grew up and, and were, were Texas guys. And Melvin Belli comes in from California with his fancy clothes um, and his, you know, big na- reputation and the book he's written and this and that. And Belli didn't respect them and they didn't respect Belli. And, you know, that was a, was a dangerous uh, uh, brew. Yeah. 
So tell us, what did the prosecutors have to prove and how did the defense, you, you touched on it a little bit, but how did the defense determine what its de- theory of defense was? So the prosecutors could have chosen second degree murder or manslaughter or first degree murder with malice. Tell us what they chose and why they chose it. And and then how did the defense decide it was going to defend against that theory of the, defense, of the prosecution? Yeah, I mean, they pursued... Um, um, you know, murder uh, with malice uh, and pursued the death penalty in this case. The defense decided not to pursue the strategy Tom Howard um, had preferred, which was to effectively go for manslaughter, and instead argued that he was legally insane, that he was um, acting in a fugue state, that he was had a rare, a rare form of epilepsy that um, prevented him from remembering much of the incident and also not understanding right from wrong. And, um, you know, that, that was a tall order for the defense. Well, besides having that sort of dichotomy between a second degree murder, which is a five-year sentence and uh, a potential indefinite period of of institutionalization, even if you win, the problems with an, an insanity defense is it's an affirmative defense. So it requires you as the defense attorney to prove something. You have to prove by a preponderance of the evidence that the defendant was legally insane, something which they wouldn't have otherwise an obligation to do, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, look, this is a yeah, this is an interesting case because there's no way Jack Ruby can deny it was him, right? I mean, you know, the world watched Jack Ruby shoot Lee Harvey Oswald. Yes, we didn't see his face, but there were, you know, enormous numbers of witnesses there. So the defense could never be, he didn't do it. The question was going to be why? What was going through his head? And as you point out, that the moment the defense decided to, to argue legal insanity, that he didn't understand right from wrong when he did it. They then had the burden to, to show that. And, you know, that, that just, that really did make the case that much harder for the defense. In the trial, um, a good deal of time is spent with the testimony of the officers, particularly uh, Sergeant Patrick Dean mm. and the statements that Ruby is said to have made and when he is said to have made them, maybe this a little bit in the weeds and more for lawyers than non-lawyers, <laughs> but I, but I found, I found this to be a very interesting aspect of the prosecution's case and the defense's objections to it. So perhaps you could flesh that out a little bit there. So a number of police officers testified and, Interestingly, they all kind of heard different comments from Ruby, who were right there. Um, you know, you son of a bitch. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I meant to shoot three times, et cetera. But the most damning was from, Sar- was from Sergeant Dean, who testified that Ruby had said that he started thinking about this two days prior on Friday. And of course, if that's the case, then you have premeditation, you have the malice of forethought that you need to convict him and potentially get the death penalty. Um, and as a legal matter at the time in Texas, they actually had, um, you know, they, they had a lot of protections for defendants, similar to what the uh, Miranda ruling, uh, which came down from the Supreme Court a couple of years later. But most importantly, you're only allowed to use a statement made by Ruby if it's effectively part of the incident itself. You know, the moment it's happening, he utters something. and You can use that. It's sort of a almost like a, a spontaneous exactly. utterance, right? Right, right. Um, but if you arrest him and you take him down to the jail and an hour and a half later he makes a comment, that's not admissible. And there was a big question with Sergeant Dean about when this statement was made. And, and he got, you know, uh, they highlighted the defense very successfully highlighted that he had notes which would show that this wasn't made as close to the time of the incident as Dean had initially suggested. 
that's a big deal legally. Right? I mean, some people are going to, you know, non-lawyers are going to say, yeah, you know, he still said it. Uh, exactly. When did he say it? Says it uh, 10 minutes. Uh, but, but it actually matters a lot uh, as a legal matter. And it ended up, as you point out, being the key issue on appeal that led to Ruby's conviction being overturned. Right. The, the Bell I, uh, and you and I, I think, agree that the Tom Howard manslaughter defense would have been the smarter defense. Absolutely. It was an easier defense to make. Ruby was a, a volatile, emotional, probably on some spectrum sort of guy. And you would have been able to say he did this, but he did it in the heat of of passion and he would have spent a few years in jail and, and gone home. And as we said, even if Belli prevails on his insanity defense, Ruby likely spends the rest of his life institutionalized. Because then I don't gonna... I don't know. I don't know that he would have spent the rest of his life institutionalized. I think that if he'd prevailed, you know, most and again, as you know, it was very rare um to have an insanity defense. But but there were definitely cases where people were released. Um uh and I would have expected that someone like Ruby, um, you know, probably would have eventually had a release date. Maybe. I, I was sort of analogizing it in my mind to John Hinckley. Um, yeah, but that's today. I mean, that's closer right. to today. I mean, it's not that much, only 15, 16 years later. But, but anyway, it's a fair point. Right. But what Belli was saying, and what I just want to uh, expand on a little bit, is that the timing of these statements really, I think, was the – most dispositive proof of premeditation, the malice. Um, and and Belli was a sort, of, sort of ahead of himself in arguing um, this race gesti um, issue. It, yeah, it, I mean, because if you think about it, right, that, that if he's in this fugue state, right, and he doesn't know right from wrong, you know, why is he, you know, look, the, the defense's argument was his statements were also part of this state of confusion that he's in, in essence, where he doesn't even realize what he's doing. The problem is the statements that he made were very clear um, and very declarative about what he was doing and why he was doing it. It was to kill Oswald. Um, and so, you know, that was a real these statements were a real problem for the defense. Right. The thing that was interesting about the defense of insanity in this case was, and you talk about it in the book, and maybe you can talk a little bit about um, Sickles and Sanford White and Leopold and Loeb trials, because they are sort of on this point that I'm going to raise, which is he's not raising, Belli was not raising an insanity defense in a classic sense of this person is insane, was insane then, remains insane now, is insane and and needs to be found not guilty by reason of insanity. This was more of a temporary insanity defense. It was this fugue state, this momentary sleepwalking-like episode, and then he's back to normal, whatever it, normal means. It, it was a blend, because what he's saying is that Jack Ruby had this rare form of epilepsy, that he definitely had this condition, and that Yes, this moment was the, you know, the, the, uh, the real issue in the case. But he couldn't argue, as you mentioned in some of those other cases, where they could literally argue temporary insanity. By the time this case happened, you couldn't really argue temporary insanity apart from asking for kind of a lesser sentence. You had to basically say he didn't understand right from wrong. Now, well, the reason I said it was a blend is because what Belli was saying is he had this condition, this rare form of epilepsy, and that it manifested itself in this moment, in this particular moment, uh, which he does not remember, et cetera. Uh, look, the fact that, that it's difficult to articulate it in a concise form is part of the challenge that the defense had in this case, right? Because in the end, the prosecutors kept coming back to the fact that, did he understand right from wrong? Did he understand right from wrong? And Belli kept wanting to come back to, well, wait a sec, wait a sec. It's more complicated than that. So I think that was one of the challenges. Yeah. When I read the <coughs> medical 
experts. And the, what was interesting, again, was as this a predicate for future trials, the, the use of electroencephalograms and electrocardiograms to, to, to diagnose the mental condition was very new yeah. um, a, a, in trials. And Bell, I was saying, look at the, look at these data points on these electroencephalograms, which no one even understood what they were <laughs> right. essentially. And that'll, that'll show you, these spikes will show you the mental illness. Do you have, do you have a sense from it? Did, did, did it resonate? Did the jury understand it? Did, did they make their point? Or was it just a interesting sort of push? Right. Well, the, the problem is that even if the jury believes that, that's not enough. I mean, and this is the point the prosecutors kept coming back to, which is even if you believe he's got a level of mental illness, even if he has this rare form of epilepsy, that doesn't mean he didn't understand right from wrong. Um, and that's the challenge. Uh, that the defense had. So do I think that it, it mattered? Um, yeah. I mean, look, I think that, that they made a interesting case um, that Jack Ruby had some form of, of epilepsy, but you know, that's not enough. I mean, epilepsy is not a condition that leads people typically to commit violent acts. So, you know, it's you can't just say he's epileptic and therefore, oh, well, that explains what he did. You need more than that. And that's the problem that the defense had. And by the way, the National Epilepsy Foundation was incredibly offended at the defense that was being presented. And they actually showed up at court to pass out leaflets, et cetera, so people could understand that epilepsy was not a condition that leads to violence, et cetera. So. The um, the next question I wanted to ask you is about the the jury verdict. H- how long did it take the jury to decide this case? One hour, one hour, and you know, he, and he gets the death penalty. I mean, that's the amazing thing. I'll tell you, when we started doing the research on this case, I had forgotten. I didn't. I'd forgotten that Jack Ruby was was sentenced to death, and and remember, this was. You know, a lot of when we talked about Dallas, et cetera, before, there was a lot of sympathy for Jack Ruby going into this case. People hated Oswald. Um, and, you know, the fact that all of that was kind of squandered in this defense, I think, was part of the, the mistake on the part of the, the, the defense. The prosecutor, I think, post-trial said the defense – took a secondary murder or manslaughter case and, and, and ruined it. Yeah. And, and look, there's an argument that the jurors ended up giving Ruby death because the defense was so offensive that, again, if Ruby and, and this, the same prosecutor you're referring to, Bill Alexander, made this comment that if Ruby had just gotten up on the stand and said, yeah, I did it. I did it for Jackie. I did it because I didn't want Jackie to have to testify in the trial. I felt bad. I was angry, this and that. Yeah, he very well could have gotten. I, I think there's a good chance that Ruby could have been convicted of murder without malice. And by the time that, you know, this trial, you, you mentioned the trial uh, happened quickly. But when you're talking about up to five years, you know, we're talking about four more years in, in, in prison for Jack Ruby, and he would have been free. Yeah. He's convicted. He's sentenced to death. He's going to appeal the case. Melvin Belli sort of has a meltdown um, after the conviction, starts screaming uncharacteristically at people and gets fired. At the jurors. At the jurors. You know, he's accusing everyone of being racist and that, you know, that that, that he's being convicted because he's Jewish and, you know, crazy stuff from Belli. And I think that. You know, I think this this case took its toll on uh, on Melvin Belli to some degree. Yeah, well, some people, you know, have you said thought that Belli was part of the conspiracy? Some people say that Belli was trying this insanity defense because it was for his legal career's best interests to be able to win this case with his medical acumen because he really was a medical expert um in the courtroom um and that 
he saw this as personally damaging to him, you know, this yeah. client decide. Well, look, I think that there's a serious argument that Belli's decision-making in this was corrupted by his own ambition. You know, can you imagine being the guy who got Jack Ruby off in trial, right? Um, you know, the guy who was able to get the not guilty verdict for Jack Ruby, who shot Oswald in front of everyone. You know, this would have been the ultimate. Now, and this is a guy who used to fire a cannon off the roof of his of his office when he won a, a big jury verdict. I mean, that's the kind of guy Belli was. So, you know, Belli would deny it, right? In his book, he certainly doesn't suggest that was the case. He believed that he claims that Jack Ruby was mentally ill and thought that this was a very strong defense, et cetera. But I think there's a serious argument that that's, that's why Belli pursued this defense. Yeah. So a new lawyer is appointed. They appeal on the grounds we were talking about the, the venue and the and the statements, um, and tell us how the court of appeals ruled. What were what were the elements? Yeah, of so, so the two key parts of the ruling were the fact that the court admitted statements that were made that shouldn't have been admitted, as we discussed earlier, that they were beyond the period of what you know you refer to as the rest gesti, meaning the event itself. Um, that you know these statements shouldn't have come in. They, they were very incriminating to Ruby. And the second thing is that there should have been a change of venue out of Dallas. Now there was, um, you know, discussion about pretrial publicity, but was not dispositive in the ruling. It was those two issues, which were the two key parts of the, the court of appeals saying Jack Ruby gets a, gets a new trial. We're in 1966 now. And, uh, and Jack Ruby has just been granted a new trial. He, though, in this period of 64 to 66, is deteriorating mentally, it seemed to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he has a sanity hearing scheduled because they have to figure out what they're going to do on, on retrial. How did, how did that work out? Well, the problem is, <laughs> the problem is Jack Ruby in, in the sanity hearing testifies that he's not insane. Right. And so the, the sanity hearing was actually to determine if Ruby could pick his own lawyer. Um, so the, the key issue was that one of his defense lawyers, not Belli, was still with him. And Ruby was saying, I want a different lawyer. And there was a question of whether he was competent to pick his own lawyer. The court said, yes, he was. Um, and Ruby testified that he was not insane. Um, and, you know, it was clear that this was all heading towards a defense in the new trial of murder without malice. And at this point, he served, you know, two and a half years um, <clears throat> in prison. No, sorry. At this point, he served three and a half years in prison. And you're talking about a crime with up to five year sentence. So if he gets it, he's going to be released very quickly. Right. But poor Jack Ruby um, dies. Dies of cancer. And uh, that became another piece in the conspiracy, right, that <clears throat> Jack Ruby was killed. And, you know, that's that's to me one of the, the more absurd ones, because, by the way, I don't mock the people who believe there was a conspiracy. There are some very serious, smart people um, who have studied this far more than I have, um, who are you know convinced there was a conspiracy. But the notion that Jack Ruby was killed three and a half years after the assassination of Kennedy after he's talked to everybody, including the Warren Commission, including a lie detector test, including the press, et cetera, that somehow that's the time they decide that he needs to die is just absurd. He, I uh, recall, started toward the end of his life there talking about how um, Lyndon Johnson was somehow involved in no, the conspiracy, right? No, no. <clears throat> That's what they want. You, the conspiracy theorists want people to believe that. He was saying that, you know, he was making comments about Johnson, um, but he was not, <clears throat> he was not suggesting that he and, that, you know, that he was part of a conspiracy with Johnson, et cetera. He was, you know, he was expounding on his own sort of, you know, increasingly mentally ill commentary about Johnson and about the Jews, et cetera. But there is nothing in anything Ruby has ever said 
which suggests, which says, or even in my view, suggests that he's saying that he was part of a broader conspiracy. It's a terrific read um, for lawyers and and non-lawyers alike. As Dan indicates, it's the fourth of a series. I, I've read all four of these series there. For law students especially, it's it's a terrific explication of the American judicial system. This one is called Kennedy's Avengers, Assassination, Conspiracy, and the Forgotten Trial of Jack Ruby. Dan, it's been a pleasure having you. Um, that said, thank you so much for joining us. Michael, it is such a pleasure to be with someone who has actually you know, read the entirety of the book and, and been as thoughtful as you have been. Uh, it's, it's rare um, uh, and, uh, and greatly appreciated. So thank you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.